Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Chet Kapoor. He's the chairman and CEO at Datastax. Chet, welcome to the show. Hello, Kevin. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me as well. I'm actually selfishly super excited to learn more about what you you guys are doing um, because because I'm in tech and, and I actually think what you guys are doing is, is very much needed for a lot of companies. But before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Uh, absolutely. Uh, born and brought up in Calcutta, India. It okay, is, very uh, cool. On the, and so it's on the, uh, the, the eastern part, uh, part of India. And uh, the, the journey has been, uh, I'm, I'm humbled uh, every day of the journey that I've had a chance to, to, chance to take. It actually started, uh, I was an avid reader. It started at the British Council Library in uh in in calcutta and i read a little book called the little kingdom it okay. was by a p person by the name of mike moretz uh mike was a times reporter then and then went on to uh run sequoia uh, oh, wow. venture fund and so the little kingdom was about um was about two steves that created this company called apple and i was sure. fascinated and and mike's just a awesome storyteller was fascinated. This is 1983. And I was fascinated by it. And I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to go and work for Steve Jobs. And so um, started plotting a course, uh, took a whole bunch of computer classes and things like that, came to the US, um, did, my, did my CS uh, and WE degree from Arizona State. And while I was at ASU, I, uh, I had the chance to actually start working for Next. It was my first job out of college. So it has been, it has been a spectacular ride from Calcutta all the way to the, to the Bay Area working for, uh, you know, one of the most, one of the biggest industry icons the world will ever have, right? Totally. Interesting. So what got you passionate about computers and technology at an early age? Was it that book or was it other stuff as well? It was, it was actually, it, and, I, and I would love to say it was, you know, I was building computers when I was six years old. That was not what happened, right? Uh, it was actually the book. And once, and once I read the book and I got into computers, and you've got to realize in, in those days, right, it's not like computers were floating around all over, all over India, right? I mean, there was a, and so it was, it was something you had to go to and you would have to book time. And this is during the mini computer stuff, you know, PCs had not shown up in a big way. And so, uh, but that's where it started. But once I got into it, here's what intrigued me. It was not just the science part. It was the art part that actually got me. The, the, the whole convergence of, but this is going to change the way we live. This is going to change the way we work. That is what got me really excited. Yeah, I, I'm fairly technical. I can go fairly deep. Uh, but but what really got me going was this convergence of how it changes people's lives and the and the companies they work for, 
and the technology itself. That that continues, by the way, as you may as you may hear, what excites me even today. It's the same feeling I had right when I was when I was 16 years old, you know, reading reading The Little Kingdom. Interesting. That's that's actually quite fascinating. So walk us through your career at Next and you've well, you've run and worked at and been acquired by some of the biggest companies on the planet. Walk us through your incredible career, maybe some highlights along the way, and then let's get into what you're doing uh, today. Uh, you know, it, it all started at Next, right? Uh, right? And so it was my first job out of college. I really do believe that as, as, I, as I mentor folks now, I tell them that, you know, be, be very careful on the people you go to work with in your first job because it will define you. And uh, Next was an awesome experience because it, the single biggest thing beyond being 20 yards away from Steve and, you know, making coffee, you know, bringing coffee for the person that made coffee, <laughs> right? Um, the, big, the, the big thing from Next was it's all about people. And you have to absolutely, you know, and, you know, have to focus on hanging out with great people that are mission oriented and are really smart and really want to change the world. So, so it started there and I, and I got that very early. And then, then after next, it was, uh, uh, I ran a services company and then uh, worked for a company called Active Software. We created an industry called uh, uh, EAI, in the integration space. And that was spectacular to see that you can, that a, that a company, along with a group of other companies, can come, can come together and actually create an industry that didn't exist, right? And that was, that was very fascinating. Uh, went to BEA, um, ran the integration business there, and then uh, went to this small, uh, small open source company. And that's where in, in 2004, open source was something I got very intrigued with and ran a company called GlueCode and IBM acquired it. It was a Why great, did you get intrigued by open source? Sorry to cut you off. There's no, no. It's uh, by the way, it is uh, it is awesome to see people from geographically very diverse diverse locations from very different companies that they work for coming together all in a distributed way to create this great technology that people land up using to run their businesses, right? And that okay. that process of of invention and creation was um, was unknown to me. So uh, the best way to put it in a phrase is software used to be built in a cathedral and what open source did, it brought it to the bazaar. You didn't have to come to Silicon Valley. You could be sitting in Sao Paulo, Brazil and still be one of the best contributors, right? So totally. open source, and it was, it, and you know, a lot of people think they understand open source, but, um, but you actually have to be in it to actually understand it and see how the commit process works and how do people contribute code and how do you have to do things by influence. And so that, 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 was, that was something that I really wanted to understand. Uh, so, so I went off and did this and then worked for IBM, which was, which was great, and then embarked on this journey called Apogee, okay. which, uh, which was great. It, was, uh, it, was, uh, it had, we had, didn't have a product, we didn't have revenue. And, uh, you know, it, it became a really good success. We took, we took it public. Uh, and then uh, Google acquired us uh, a year after that. Uh, spent three years at Google, grew the business, ran the last 
my last stop at Google was running education for Google uh, and and then decided to uh, branch back into doing something uh, with a set of people that I worked with over the last 20 years uh, because we still have, uh, we think data is, is taking off in a big way and we wanted to do it in a very specific way. And so uh, data stacks was where we landed and, uh, and we've been growing the company since. Very cool. So what, how did you come up with the idea for data stacks and, and what exactly is it? So um, data stacks was founded in 2010 uh, and uh, Jonathan Ellis, who is one of our co-founders, is still still with the company. But cool. it was founded with the concept that uh, that it's you know SQL databases are well structured, and the world was going to an unstructured world, not just transactional, but an unstructured world. Totally. And there was no database uh, around that would scale massively. Right. Um, even in the SQL world, scaling massively is hard. Right, and so uh, Cassandra, Cassandra was born as a scale-out NoSQL database, uh, and over the last eleven years, it has proved itself again and again and again. Kevin, think about any any massive app or any uh, website, and Cassandra is behind it. Right. Cassandra was actually it, it actually came out of a lot of stuff that Facebook did. Right. Right. And so so it is uh, it, and, and it is it is it's no question. It is the scale out database of choice. It is the standard for NoSQL databases. And so that's what that's what was Datastax's business. But we have now expanded it and we talk about the company is focused on the open data stack. Right. So database is just one part of it. But you need other things, right? You have a database is basically data at rest. You need data in motion. You need APIs. You need to be cloud native with Kubernetes. And so we're bringing all of that together in what we call the open data stack. And developers and enterprises are absolutely loving it. Sure, because you're saving them a huge amount of time, development, and technical knowledge, right? Like it's hard to find people that truly understand that whole part of an application. Is that fair to say? It is very fair. So our, uh, and, and if you look at the two axes that we product, we actually optimize every day. Okay. One of them is developer productivity. Sure. We want developers to be 5X more productive than they already are. They should not worry about things like scaling and Kubernetes operators and things like that, you do that for them. And the second thing is 5X cheaper because data is exploding and so are the costs. Totally. Right, so, so it's, all about, you know, it's all about the developer productivity to get outside of the innovation stalemate and then the TCO focus so you get out of that, the TCO debt spiral. Interesting. So walk us through how does a developer or a company actually use data stacks and, and what's the learning curve to actually start using the product? The learning curve is we think, we think, uh, we think somebody who understands JavaScript and wants oh, wow. to build an app. Uh, we, so yeah, it's, uh, we, we really it's simplified low. this. Yeah. So somebody understands JavaScript and want to build an app 
Um, we think that you should have not the part of the app that you're building in JavaScript, but from a database point of view, mm-hmm. we think setting up a database that scales in the cloud uh, should take you less than an hour. Oh, wow. And so, so we would, and, and then after that, you need to, you know, when you have, when you have multi, multi-developer usage and you talk about going multi-region, it gets a little bit hairier, but sure. your zero to 60, as we call it, uh, to much more than hello world should be way south of an hour. We try to even target hello world to be, you know, less than 10 minutes. Wow. Okay. So people can try you very quickly. Very quickly. And Astra is our cloud product. Uh, Cassandra is a great scale out database that has not been known to be easy to develop or operate. Okay. And so the, so offering it as a cloud service and saying, Hey, it's no ops. Right, you don't have to worry about operating it. We do it as a service, and making it really easy with GraphQL, JSON, and REST, and gRPC, making it really easy to consume for developers, is is the magic sauce that makes our business grow very fast. Interesting. So, can you maybe give us some examples of? You don't have to give company names, but how companies have been leveraging your technology, just so people can understand how they could potentially like, oh, I'm in that space, or we could leverage that. Uh, can you give us some examples? Yeah, so um, let's talk about Home Depot. And okay. it's very uh, relevant to the pandemic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Home Depot has been using Cassandra for many years, and um, I think it's well documented that they've been using Cassandra with 100% uptime for over five years. Wow, right? that's which like unheard is, is, of, right? Yeah, so it's like, uh, so it's awesome, right? I mean, it's just, it, it's, been, it's been working really well, right? And if you talk to some of our other customers, they will tell you the same thing. Once they build it, um, then it just works and it scales really well and things like that. But when the pandemic hit, Home Depot went through something interesting. Their store traffic dropped significantly. Sure. But the demand increased. Right. Right, because... Everybody was at home. They would want to do home projects and things like that. So a really big part of fulfillment of that demand had to come up with, they had to come up with curbside, you know, curbside pickup. Right. So they literally rolled out in less than 30 days. They built the functionality for curbside pickup in less than 30 days and rolled it out all across North America. Wow. And they That's did, they did it all. That is very, and by the way, and, and we're not talking about a toy app, right, Kevin? We're talking totally. about something that millions of people use, right? Sure. And so, and it, and it works really well. And all of that was done based on Cassandra, Kubernetes, Datastax, and other technologies, right? But the basis was what they do with us. So wow. it's super interesting. Okay. Do you maybe uh, want to give us a couple other examples? Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, Macquarie Bank. Uh, financial services company based in uh, in Australia. Okay. Uh, they they wanted to they wanted to go off and actually have a three sixty degree view of their customers. Okay. And, and and why? Right. The reason is because they wanted to start providing personalized products for each of their customers. They have over a million customers, by the way. Wow. Right. I mean, so and and they're millions. Right. So what they did was they they created this 360 app that's all based on data stacks. And now based on the information available, they have literally millions of SKUs 
where they can actually have personalized products for each of their customers, right? Yeah. And they did this all in a six-month period. Wow, right? that's also very and so, Yeah, so this is, and, and the reason the, the, the team here is because they're focused on the business value and we, we take them away from worrying about the illities and the scaling and things like that. We make it easy to develop, easy to manage, and it just goes from there. So that's a, that's, that would be a second example. The third one, again, going back to one that's, that, that, that your listeners are very familiar with, FedEx. Sure. Right? FedEx, uh, the Federal, Federal Express's shipping application runs on data stacks. So every time you access track your, your package tracking or anything like that, whether it's through a website or through a mobile app, you're actually using data stacks. And, and Federal Express has been using it for years and it, wow. and it scales beautifully. I mean, think about it, right? Federal Express as a company is in 98% of the countries in the world. Wow. I didn't realize because it was they have that to big. deliver packages. That's- that's yeah, awesome. no, 98%, 98%. <laughs> wow, wow. So it's, it's massive. <laughs> Very cool. So how do you, or what are your thoughts and advice around companies struggling with this data problem? Because I, I know, well, you know that every company has good data, bad data, no data, some data. How do you work with companies at different stages or good, bad data uh, to actually get it into the cloud scaling and start using uh, data stacks? Um, so I start uh, to, we start by having the conversation Okay. that, that data is, that data is exploding and the value of data is increasing exponentially, right? Okay. It's just increasing. And, and so that is happening. So how do you get more and more value from your data? So one, one way to do that is to take all of it and put it into a warehouse, right? Use okay. something like Snowflake or whatever else you want, and then run some you know, ML or algorithms on top, and you can get some insights. That's very good for what we call the deep lane. Okay. There's something parallel to that, which is where we live. It's called the fast lane, right? You, how do you take data from all these different databases you have and have a standardized way to access it and store it? Sure. Right? How do you make sure you do that? Because the value of data is not just an app. The value of data is to be used by other data, as well as by machine learning, as well as by data scientists, as well as by business analysts, right? And so totally. how do you, instead of, in, you know, so Kevin, and, and, and you will succinctly understand this, we've all built architectural pictures with the app on top and databases on the bottom. Totally, yeah. I think we're at a point where we have to flip it. Oh, interesting. The app is just, the app is just one user sure. of data. Sure. And I'm specifically not saying databases because databases are about database at rest. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot more to data because you have to also talk about data, data in motion, right? Okay. And so you do that combination. But when you do that, it is, you have to flip, a, whether it's a three-tier, two-tier, whatever app that you're building, 
you actually have to flip it around and it's not databases on the bottom or data on the bottom, it's actually data on top. And that's how our enterprises think of it. So we have this kind of conversation with them and they all get it, right? They, everybody talks about it slightly differently, but they understand it to their very core. And our value proposition, back to what I said earlier, is very, very simple. We build products that developers love. Sure. That change the trajectory of the enterprises they work for. Interesting. So that is, so we are, we, we are always talking to the CIO or to the VP of, of, of infrastructure, app development, data, and there are different titles in different places, CTOs, uh, about, about an enterprise-wide view and then making sure that developers love the products we build. Because at the end of the day, they are the users of the product. Sure. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because you're right. Data has become so important. And like to use an example, like some, you use some obviously huge clients that people have heard of and all those clients of yours obviously have their own customers. And so in your Home Depot example, like the CEO and everybody in the C-suite and upper management and middle management, some of the junior people, obviously like Home Depot customers, like everybody's potentially pulling the same data at the same time for, for a different use case, for a different device, whether it's on a phone, at like a terminal in a store or curbside or, you know, wherever, right? And your, your data that has to be always kind of moving and adapting and updating and being live is so important these days that I think people don't realize how complicated it really is to do it yourself. And you need tools like you guys are offering to just handle it so you can keep up, so you can scale. And the reliability that you guys can offer is just like unheard of, right? Absolutely. So, so Kevin, this is in, in your world, right? You're mm -hmm. a designer. But if you don't have yep. the right tools, you're going to spend more time on the technology and the tooling than actually designing. 100%. Right? And that's exactly what we're doing for enterprises and for developers. But you have to do it for both. Right? Totally. You build a product they love, and then you have to do it at an enterprise-wide level. Well, and then you also have to design the interface around the data that's available today and that you could get tomorrow, right? Which I think a lot of companies don't think about. It's like, how does the interface scale and update and evolve as we get more data, new data, better data. Um, like, fair to say? Very, no, you, you nailed it. And, and what is interesting is it is not, um, the interface, just for your listeners, is not just a UX manifestation. It totally. can be a programmatic manifestation. So it is a combination of UX, as well as APIs, like I said earlier, not all data is going to be used by, an, by, a, by a UX part, right? There's got to totally. be other applications that call it as well. So you have to make sure that those are getting updated as well. Totally, right? Yeah, they're like living and breathing as well, right? Which is adds a whole other layer of complexity, which I think you guys solve a large majority of that just by being just what you got the products and service you use you guys offer but i'm curious obviously like you you mentioned open source 
I've done um, some open source projects and, you know, we don't need to talk about that necessarily, but I've had really good experiences with them, but I, I still find sometimes enterprise or large companies or even small companies to medium companies struggle with actually going open source. Why do you think it's so important it can actually be used in enterprise and actually save businesses big to small to any size actually a lot of money? Um, so let's let's start from the top. Um, okay. Inno innovation um, happens in the bazaar, not at the cathedral. The sure. best ideas are not coming from people who are sitting in buildings next to each other. The right. best ideas and, and the inspiration for innovation comes by from anywhere in the world, right? And yep. so that's where I would say it's a small world, right? It's a, yep. because, because I think that, that's the critical, right? Why do you write software? Because you want to innovate, sure. right? And so, and innovation happens in the bazaar. That's, that's number one. The, the second thing is it happens transparently with open sure. source. Sure. So, and, 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 and giving your experience and the, and your listeners, when you write code and you ship software, you are going to have, there are going to be some mistakes and bugs. It's just the nature of what you do. Sure. The question is, can you, can you make sure you fix them quickly and a bunch of people are collaborating to fix it rather than the five set of, the five people that wrote it. Totally. And that's what open source does. So open source gives you innovation, but it also gives you a ton of reliability. Yep. Right? Because it is being it, because because that piece of code that was written is being used by so many different people in totally. so many different ways that it gets really hardened and making it happen. Well, and in so, so many parts of the world, right? Absolutely. So, so those two things are very important. So now enterprises have uh, struggled with it because there are a lot of software companies that are not open source. And my right. take in, you know, from, for, at least, for at least eight years now has yep. been, if you're going to do something with technology, it better be open source, right? Kubernetes has proved it, right. like Cassandra has proved it, and you can just go down, go, go down, go down the path. Um, enterprises have struggled to adopt it because software companies were not built on open source projects. Totally. But that's changed. Look at companies like Datastax. Right. So the second thing that they've struggled with is should they just be the consumer of it or should they contribute to the projects? Because that's when you're being a good citizen. You're, right. not, just, you're not just using it, but you're actually giving back as well. And that is what I'm excited about in 2021, Kevin. I can see large companies that we work with, banks, retailers, people that you would normally not think as open source contributors showing up and saying, we love what you're doing. We love the way you're doing it. Help us get into the communities because we want to contribute. We have use cases we want to bring and have discussions with people so that we can solve them in a creative, collaborative way. And that part has become super exciting. Totally. So, and then, and so all of this is around innovation, contribution, reliability. The next thing after that is making it available as a service and making it available with significant cost savings, right? But I think sure. it, starts from, it starts from innovation and agility and then goes to cost savings. Anybody that just starts with cost savings being the 
being the primary reason, yeah. I find over a period of time, we'll, they'll get disillusioned. You have to start by saying, I'm going to get some really awesome innovation and I'm going to make sure, because, and because of that, I'm going to get a lot of agility. Interesting. No, I 100% agree with you. And it's cool that you're having those companies in traditional industries that are slower to adopt technology actually wanting to contribute to open source projects because I think it's very important and it's very useful and everybody benefits from it. But the challenge has to be then, how do you guys manage the, the data stacks roadmap? Because you have huge companies using it. Yeah. Uh, you have huge companies contributing to it. You know, they can probably really kind of, you know, sway their weight in where the product potentially goes. So how do you manage you know, feature requests and features that are coming at you from the community, as well as what you guys are trying to build. And, and this is where you have to be the great, very, very insightful question. But this is where you have to be transparent. Okay. Uh, and, and, and be very crisp on the way you execute. Okay. The, the roadmap for the open source project is governed by the people that participate in that open source project. Got you. And, and everybody gets a vote, but the size of company they work for is not okay. relevant. And which okay. is one of the reasons why I'm a big, which I'm a big fan of the, the Apache way of doing things. Right. right? And so it is fairly, whether you, whether you work for company XYZ or you work for yourself, it doesn't matter. You are one contributor to the, one committer to the, to, to the project. So that's one. Now we, um, Open source is in our DNA. We will not do something that is not open source, but we don't do all our innovation in open source. We're committed to it. We will do features because the, the thing about, because of the collaboration of open source, it's yeah. not the fastest, more agile way of doing it. So we will always build software that can be outside open source right. with a complete commitment to take it back to open source gotcha. and go through the process in making gotcha. it happen. So we get the, so our, our customers get the, the best of both worlds. Developers get the best of both worlds. They can go off and use a cloud service. Right. And we made it really easy to build, uh, to build apps. And we've really, really made it really easy to manage. And they can use all the cool, cool innovation, knowing very well that whatever we're doing there, they will be able to leverage in the open source communities over time as well. So we, so we have to, you, you have to, you have to make sure that you continue to do that cycle, right? In, uh, in, in, in a transparent way with the community, but make sure that you're also serving the enterprise needs. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious then, what advice do you give to companies on actually executing software products? Because, well, as you know, they're complicated and, even even just like in the early days, some of the stuff and decisions you make can very much affect you, you know, six months, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road sometimes. So what advice do you give people on, on actually executing um, their projects and, and their companies that you've kind of learned over the last number of years? Um. Design matters. 
Okay. And I'm not saying this because of the, because I'm on your podcast. No, no, fair. <laughs> right? But design matters um, because I think, um, and I, and I mean that across um, all perspectives, right? Sure. I mean, um, and so so that's one. And I'm thinking more big D than small D, but design matters. Um, the second thing is iterate like crazy, right? Sure. Because um, you don't start by saying I'm going to design something throughout the architecture, the UX, all that stuff. And then I'm going to go off and say, I'm going to implement this over a six month period, like start with 10% of the functionality and start rolling it out because you'd learn a lot, right? Sure. We, we, we have, we have a saying, um, you know, having been delivering cloud services for over a decade is that every service or app has a shakedown period, yeah. right? Where, where you take it, you, where you, where you actually let people start using it. And you actually shake out all the bugs and you make it a much better, much, much better app or a much better service as you go. So the, the first one would be design. The second one would be iterate like crazy. Those two things. The third thing is um, be, be thoughtful um, on the technologies you pick. Okay. Right? Because the thing that you don't want to do um, is actually change the stack every six or nine months because sure. you you want that to actually be something you you will have to change it two three four you know years into it but you don't just make sure you because you will not get the lift off that you need because you need to iterate very quickly and the, the stability of having a stack makes a massive difference as you go forward you don't have to be wed to it but do it like you're committed to it right is sure. uh, is, is is the way to look at it but those would be the those would be the three things I would say. And and the fourth one, by the way, it's it, it's obvious, and I cannot say this enough, which is start with an outside in point of view, right? It is not about you. Sure. It is about who you're serving. And so start with how how is this person's life going to change because of what they're using? How is it going to help the company? that this, this app is being used by, right? But start with an outside in point of view and that should be your North Star as you go forward. Sure. I'm, I'm curious then, do you have any advice for building like a successful startup? I think what you just talked about is actually really valuable to kind of anybody at any company, but do you have any advice? Because obviously you've been from idea to acquisition, you've gotten companies bought by, companies that everybody wants basically their startup to be bought by is there anything outside of what you just talked about that you learned that you're like oh i wish my startup did this and then you did it on another startup you know or anything that helped you along the way um uh, that three parts um and there are different parts of a startup but i think these three um and i'll give you two i'll, I'll answer the question in two different ways perfect one is um Make sure you're really passionate about the problem. Okay. That you're That's solving. Um, so that is that is really important. Um, secondly, make sure you're doing it with people you really like. How do you find those people? Because that can be extremely challenging in my experience. Yeah, and and here's the I, I, I say this for I, I tell folks who are building companies take money from somebody who you can have a beer with. Yeah, That's because good advice. Be, because because you'd be drinking a lot, right? <laughs> and, 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 the, and the point here is that startups, you know, have 
you know, in the beginning, right, when things are going, you have many bad days, right? And you want to make sure that, and so the same advice about the VCs applies to co-founders and your team. It, the beer is just a way of talking about it, right? But I think it's, how do you make sure you do this with people you like? And my take is that trumps skills. 100%. It's really important for somebody to be very skilled and be super smart, but, you know, you don't want to hire assholes either. Yeah, 100%. Right? And so, so number one, be passionate about what you're doing. Secondly, make sure you do it with people you like. And then the third one, which is really important, is have fun. Yeah. Because it's going to consume you, right? And if you're not having fun, uh, it's not worth it. Because the, the, if you're passionate and you're doing it with good people, create an environment where you're actually having fun. And whatever your version of it might be. Sure. Right. It could be video games with somebody. It could be something else with somebody else. Could be hiking, whatever. And but create an environment in your day-to-day work where you're where you're having fun doing it. So those would be my three things that I would ask them to do. The, uh, I'll give you a different uh, perspective. I, sure. I I have three words I use on, on on a regular basis to think about how I go into projects or startups or companies, right, and okay. how I assess investments. Yeah. Do I believe, do I inspire, and do I execute in that work? Because it all starts from believing in an idea. It's about inspiring other people to believe in the same idea. And then it's about execution of the idea, making it successful, right? And so that, you, and so you, you always have to start, because all good ideas start with one person thinking, wow, or two people thinking it's a great idea. You have to convince other people that they think it's as good. And then the third one is you have to execute on it because, because believing and inspiring means nothing without actually the metrics and the results showing up. No, couldn't agree with you more. So I'm curious, you kind of touched on it. How do you handle like a work-life balance or, or advice for that? Because I think especially in the early days when you're kind of struggling, maybe you're having bad days, it's easy to put in long hours and kind of forget about your own health and well-being because you're so focused on trying to make it. Um, great question. Uh, I've, I've always said uh, I have this. Uh, I've always said this for a long time, which is um, I want to make sure my kids don't call me uncle, and and I hold on to that, right? And so it's a you have to find a way, and there's no. There's no silver bullet here, Kevin, but you say, you know what, this is how you do work-life balance. You have to, anybody that tells me they have work-life balance, my take is either they're not working um, <laughs> sure. or they're not, you know, or, they're, or they don't have a personal life, one of the two. Because anybody, everybody I talk to struggles with it and balances every day. Right? I'm actually really they, glad that you said that. Sorry to cut you off. I think that's like no, no. super important because... You re why I asked the question is because I figured you were going to give this answer. It's like you, it's like everybody struggles with it, no matter if it's day one or like you've been at it for decades, right? It's like everybody struggles with it. And like I think some days you're good at it, some days you're crappy at it. But, but I really appreciate somebody like yourself actually mentioning that. Keep going. Sorry to cut you off. No, it's just, it, by the way, it's, uh, and, and my take is, and, and I think you nailed it, which was this what I was going to say, which is, you know, there's some days you will be very successful at that balance, and there are others you won't be on both sides, 
Sure. Right on sure. the personal side as well as your work side. And you know, the 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 phrase that I've been using recently is loving kindness to sure. yourself. Right to yourself. So don't be too hard on yourself when you over rotate one way or the other. Right. It'll as long as you keep thinking about it, you will figure out a way to balance and get through it. But but I would just the 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 other part I was going to say, Kevin, is that and I think a lot of people don't do this. Um, I've always maintained this. It's been, uh, it's been something that's come fairly naturally to me, but I didn't realize how hard it was for folks. Um, I have always maintained that any company I start or I come to work for as a CEO is a company I come for, to work for. It, I never use the word my company because the, my identity as an individual is separate from that company and I don't merge them. Interesting. And it's really important to me, and I think it's really important to people I work with, that we all realize that we all come to work for data stacks. It is not Chet's company, uh, right? And even if I was a co-founder of the company, I would have said the same thing. This is our company. Yes, I co-founded, but this is our company. I get a paycheck just like you do, right? So let's make sure we make this the best place that we can all excel at. Interesting. I, I, I would think a lot of people don't share that same, I agree with you. And I think that's awesome that you do that. But I think a lot of companies or CEOs or co-founders of a company do not see it like that. Yeah. And, and the reason it, I mean, it goes back to, because I, I think, uh, and nothing wrong with a different point of view, I'm giving you sure. mine, but my yeah, only understand. take is the one thing I'm fairly sure about is that, you know, the, the, the role you play in your professional life and who you are in your personal life, if you make it, if you start identifying yourself with the role you play, yeah. whether you're a CEO or co-founder, it is not a recipe for uh, a successful path, right? Because there will be many ups and downs sure. and you need to find a way to separate the two as you go through life. Yeah, that's actually really good advice. Hmm, interesting. So I'm curious, we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but is there any other advice that you want to give people listening and, and maybe, or even some stuff that like you wish you knew sooner or, or, you know, would tell yourself, you know, it, when you were, you know, doing your first startup or something like that, or, or anything else you want to kind of uh, close out on. And then I, I want to talk about your podcast just to, just to kind of close out the show. Um, strategy is important but okay. execution is far more important. Sure. I've said this uh, a couple of times, you know, culture or execution, it's strategy for lunch, right? Because if you don't have the right environment that people can execute on and actually get the results that you want, you can have beautiful strategies and it doesn't make a difference. So you make sure you have the right strategy, make sure you get the right people, Focus on the results and make sure that whatever you're focused on, you use data to drive those results. Because you did, again, back to what, what you do in 2021 versus what you did in, in 2020 or even 2010, right? If you do not have a data-driven approach to be successful, you're doing something wrong. I 100% agree with you. So you also host a podcast. What's it called? What's it about? And what made you actually decide to start a podcast? 
So inspired execution is it, it's what is what it's called. And uh, I've had a, a bunch of people over the last, uh, I would say, the last fifteen years tell me that I should write a book. And you uh, generally, and yeah, and <laughs> and generally, my my response is. Uh, it's 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 best to do that uh, later on because I still want my results to be shown um, by by the companies I by help create and 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 lead. But the one thing that occurred to me uh, and uh, Reed Hoffman, uh, his podcast Masters of Scale, was awesome, and I was listening to it and I loved it. And so we decided that it's the best way to bring some of my leadership principles as well as interact with people that I meet on a regular basis. And sure. it started out with just the people I knew, right? Sure. And now it's expanded uh, to people I don't know. But it's great to get these folks out who have been very successful, small, large. Uh, and we talk about a multitude of things, right? We've talked about diversity. We've talked about culture. Uh, we've talked about, you know, during the pandemic, we talked about distributed work. Uh, we've talked about how the CEO of a bank in Singapore uh, actually walked around with, with, a, with a nice little card that said, what would Jeff say, right? Basically, he, he, you know, Jeff Bezos inspired him. So lots of great small stories from practitioners. Sure. And that was the critical part of what we wanted. We wanted people to not show up and talk about themselves, but actually have nuggets that they could share. And, uh, and what is what drives what drives all of it, uh, what, what I tell everybody I interview is you're giving advice to a younger version of yourself. Interesting. Sure. And by doing that, you know, the bullshit factor goes away and they focus on real stories that they could have helped, that, that they would have, that they could have thought was very useful when they were younger. So we have a blast with it. You know, it's a lot of fun, much like our discussion today. And, uh, and, and I think we'll continue doing it. Which we continue to think about new formats and things like that. We also have a great team that helps. That that makes a big difference. No, that's really great. But sadly, we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, Data Stacks on the podcast? Uh, absolutely. So datastacks.com. Uh, you can always you can you can always use Google, uh, but datastacks.com works really well. And Inspired Execution is a podcast available on uh, on Google Play as well as on Apple. So you can you can you can download it from there and listen to it. Perfect, Chet. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. And have a good rest of your day, man. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.